0: Hello, Radio Cachimbona listeners. I am so excited to be unlocking this lit review from the second season of Radio Cachimbona's lit review. On this lit review, I had a friend of the podcast, Laura Barrera, a fellow Latina, who is now an assistant professor at the Ohio State University Law School, join me to chat about The Yellow House, a memoir by Sarah Broom. We break down how Broome unveils New Orleans East, and the ways in which it has been historically neglected, especially as compared to the French Quarter of New Orleans. We also broke down how the slew of New Orleans mayors have tried to make the city better, and shared how we relate to Broome's intergenerational storytelling, and how our stories do not begin and end with us. The Lit Review is a special segment that I do for patrons, and as you see now, I also occasionally unlock them so that we can all share in the good times and good conversations. But the Lit Review is a book club style chat with fierce women of color, and it's one of my favorite things about doing the podcast. So if you want to hear more episodes like these, please feel free to go to patreon.com slash and become a patron to support the work. You can also follow at Chimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope you all enjoy this unlocked lit review. Wow, that was like the fifth time I tried that. (laughs) I'm really excited today to have Laura Marrera, who is a fellow immigration attorney. She actually does deportation defense for detained minors. And she was in the alert review when we read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And now we're back because we read the memoir The Yellow House by Sarah Broom, And the book is focused on her house that she grew up in but it also tells the story of the generation before her and all of her 11 brothers and sisters and it's been really popular a lot of people have said that they feel like she has changed the genre of memoir and has brought in other genres into it we were talking about how she has kind of some journalistic elements with how. She identifies people in her family by their first names instead of the names that she knows them by, but also, but only in certain parts. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're one who suggested this book to me actually, because we were going to do it for a book club, which might happen, TBD. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So why did you, like, what drew you to the book? So I
1: think I was actually reading the list of nominees for the National Book Award, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to read books by women of color, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I thought this book, I mean, it just sounded really interesting, and so that's why I wanted to read it. Basically, I just, I'd heard really good things, and I personally have been trying to focus but my reading list on reading books by women of color.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's set in New Orleans, and I appreciated reading this after having recently visited New Orleans in August because she the neighborhood that she grew up in is called new orleans east and it's a historically neglected part of the city and actually so much so that she points out in the beginning of the book that on maps of new orleans the city it doesn't even actually show up a lot of times because the french quarter predominates and new orleans east is so much bigger than the French Quarter, that if it were to be on a map, it would look like the French Quarter is this tiny part of New Orleans when, kind of to the larger U.S., New Orleans is this romanticized Mardi Gras, beads, alcohol, party, all the time, and she kind of unpacks that and talks about how that's really not true.
1: Have you been to New Orleans? I was there once for the AILA conference, oh. <laughs> but it did yeah. actually, it made me think a did little bit. Did you also stay in the French Quarter?
0: I did, Because uh, <laughs> the conference was in the French Quarter. <laughs> I know. Quarter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I went to New Orleans for a conference, it was in the French Quarter, so It's not only stayed in the French yeah. Quarter. Yeah.
1: It made me think a little bit of, in some of her descriptions about Detroit. That's where I went to law school and that's where my mom's from, and it's kind of similar. Like, I think people think of Detroit really as, I mean, I guess unlike New Orleans, most people don't have a very romantic vision of Detroit. <laughs> But if people do go there, they really stay in like a very small space that is downtown and midtown, and m- most people really don't live in those places, and they're very neglected. But the city still, <clears throat> the city still plays up the image of Detroit. It kind of uses the experience of the people who live outside of downtown as like people like, our hustlers. They know how to work hard. and Because there's a brand actually called Detroit Hustles Harder, That's what I was thinking of. Oh, yeah. um, and people, like, are very hard workers and can get through anything. But then the city doesn't actually, like, support those people. But they kind of just use that image. And then, like, the, the actual city, as far as what gets supported by the government, the local government, like, a really
0: small area that doesn't really represent the population at all. Mm-hmm. Also, isn't there a lot of – there's been a lot of foreclosures – in Detroit, especially after the mortgage crisis in two thousand eight, right? Oh yeah, especially after uh, there was a uh, water
1: shutoffs, and like they were taking, there was all kinds of issues with like water pipes breaking and leaking underground, and people getting water bills that were like a thousand dollars, and couldn't pay them, and they use that to put a lien on the house, and then take the house, and then sell it. Actually, they talk about that
0: after the yeah this book. <laughs> <laughs> that's why like I Yeah, they did that. <laughs> Yeah, because I thought, I think both Detroit and New Orleans have a parallel in that they're both, at, at least at one point in time, had very large black populations. And mm-hmm. also the local government and state government, in the case of Detroit, like really neglected mm-hmm. the city and neglected its poorest residents who were black folks. And so uh, if she talks about Katrina and... the devastation that it did to houses in New Orleans East and how there was this really wild supposed project for restoration of homes, but it was and they they called it the oh my god, what is it called? The road? The road? The the front the road? Road homes? homes. They're calling it road homes. Yeah, I think they're called road homes. Maybe that was the program that, that it was, but Basically, for people whose properties have been damaged, they were given a few options. You could be given money to renovate it or you could sell it And both ways were kind of... It was a catch-22 for people because like renovating it would have been more expensive than what the city was offering them to do that. And then the payout that they were getting was based on current market prices after Katrina where everything was devastated so they weren't getting paid. Really... What the house was worth before Katrina. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's one thing that was really cool about this book. What you said about how she, people have been saying that she kind of changed what it means to be a memoir. Mm -hmm. Because I think in, and she, you know, was a journalist by career, right? But in reading this book, you actually, you don't just learn about her life, but you learn a lot of facts about New Orleans, both like historically and more present day, which I thought was really
0: cool. Yeah, that's true. That's why I appreciated reading it because it was kind of. It was a historical account of the city of New Orleans like investment and disinvestment mm-hmm. and also the different politicians that have tried to that have been mayor and like tried to fix the city and failed mm-hmm. so to to talk more about how you, we think that she blended genres with this book how else did you see her doing that like, something that you wouldn't have normally seen in a memoir. I think normally in a memoir, we think of someone
1: talking about themselves, right? About their mm-hmm. life. And that she really, there's a lot of parts of this book that aren't about her. Yeah. So, like, it starts with her talking about, I think she starts talking about her grandmother's
0: generation. But
1: mm-hmm. I don't recall if it was even her great-grandmother.
0: I think it was her grandmother's generation. Like, she might have mentioned her grandma's mom.
1: Yeah, so like that she starts there, she talks a lot about them, and she talks then about her her mother, and her upbringing, and her siblings, and her parents, and then there's other parts where she talks a lot about the history of the city, and so unlike kind of a more traditional memoir, there's just big parts of this, of this book that are not about the
0: author. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we brought up before we started recording, too, is that like, you mentioned she was a journalist by trade, and there's some parts of it that do feel journalistic. She... It took me a while to figure out who her father was or what his name was because sometimes she would say my father, but then sometimes she would say Simon Broom, And she did that with all her family members. Like, sometimes she would call them by their nickname, and then sometimes she would call them by, like, their proper name or, like, their government name. And, and also, yeah... And I guess memoirs are usually introspective, right? Because I felt like she was just doing a lot of really deep reflecting. Yeah. Even in how she organized the book. The, the sections are The World Before Me. Wait, I wrote it down because I was like, this is cool. <laughs> she, The first section is The World Before Me. And then the second part is The Grieving House. In The World Before Me, that's where she talks about her grandparents and her mom and her siblings. And then The Grieving House is where she talks about her dad's death Mm -hmm. and that was also kind of before her because her dad died when she was six months old and so i I thought that was one of the more touching parts of the story too that like she was reconstructing her dad's life even though she had never really spent significant amount of time with him through this memoir yeah i thought that was really beautiful and then the third part of the book is water that's where she talks about katrina and then she wraps it up with, you know what it means, in investigations. And that's where she takes you through this kind of meta explanation of the book, how it started, and what she did to write it. Yeah, and I feel like the memoirs I remember reading when I was in middle school, I feel like were just like chronological life.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Life's tellings. Yeah. But I feel it was cool that she divided up her life thematically.
1: Right, it's almost, like, more similar to just, like, a nonfiction book that you read, yeah. that is, like, a memoir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, what did you think about how she started off with the map of New Orleans, and, like, what does it mean that New Orleans East isn't on the map? Do we think about who creates maps and what authority that creates? yeah. I mean,
1: I think that it has it says a lot about what the perceived center of something is. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm sure probably the French Quarter isn't really the center of yeah. New Orleans. Yeah. But in any map you would look at, that's that's they they almost think of it as that's all that needs to be on the map because you wouldn't ever be looking for anything else. Mm-hmm. So I think it does say a lot about which communities are erased and which are considered important, and then. Also when you think about
0: like representative of the city, like you're talking about. Yeah. Like,
1: yeah, like when you think about who makes the maps and mm-hmm. how much that says about what powerful people think is important.
0: Yeah. I'm reminded of how like, historically globes were made so that Europe was, looked larger than it yeah. actually is. That's what the that's what her focus on the map and, and like talking about how New Orleans is New Orleans East isn't even on the map. Reminded me of that because I feel like with GPS, we kind of take the creation of maps for granted and just assume that it's a subjective activity and it's actually
1: not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Have you ever seen um, those, like, pictures of, like, people have asked, like, random Americans to, like, name countries and, like... Oh my God. ...other continents, and it's just terrible.
0: Like, nobody <laughs> has any idea what anything is. Yeah. I feel like... Yeah, I feel like I have seen... I've seen those a lot, and I feel like since Trump, I'm sure that those videos have just increased because I think there was always kind of this, like, "haha, Americans are ignorant thing, but now it's, like, really... Yeah. Mm.
1: <laughs> I think it's, like, me... I hope that people think it's less funny now because it actually yeah. has consequences. Americans like,
0: think it's less funny? I hope. Yeah. I know. I always found it kind of sad. Yeah, it's definitely sad. <laughs> I feel like it used to be... Well, I'm sure that, I mean, there's people that... I think this is when we get to nationalism, but people think about American exceptionalism and mm-hmm. think that the US is the best ever, and we don't need to think about right. other countries. We don't need to know about other countries because they're irrelevant. There might be oh my god, there is these Yale fraternity boys who would have who would wear these shirts that were like America, like World War champs, like back, is it back <laughs> to back to back World War champs. Wow,
1: <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs>
0: So we were talking about how, how much we learned about New Orleans through her telling of her the telling of her story. I also thought it was cool that her dad played for Doc Paulin, who's like this famous jazz music, jazz musician in New Orleans, and she she said that Doc Paulin offered he was so close to her dad that he offered to throw a jazz funeral for him and then her mom was just so stressed that she said no mm-hmm. and then Sarah also I think it's okay I'm about to get into the ceremony thing later <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that she was she said I I also regretted that my mom didn't do that because I felt like a part of my own narrative was taken away yeah because she said that she felt like she inherited her musicality from her dad and that passage was just an example of like this woman is so deep and so brilliant I don't know she she intertwines so much when she's actually just talking about herself which I feel like is something only a woman of color could do a black woman could do because mm-hmm. white men are the centers of their own yes, universes absolutely. and like they're the protagonist and life is like everybody sees life through their eyes yeah and it's just so amazing how she's able to bring in family intergenerational trauma music narrative identity in one book and like and for me it was like in that one paragraph too
1: yeah i think it's, it's actually really hard to contextualize yourself yeah you yeah tend we all i think tend maybe especially white men but i think we all tend a little bit to want to think like we are our own story. Yeah. Well, it's how we experience the world. So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But there is this, and of course, in some ways that's true, but there is this broader context in which it, maybe it makes more sense. Really. It is kind of incredible about this book, how she really does think through the whole context of her life. And she does so much of this making connections between all the, all the things that she did in her life and how that relates to this like bigger scheme of everything that, her, the generations that came before her
0: did, and her siblings. Yeah. So this is something I wanted to ask you about. She talks about meeting Samantha Powers, the UN woman, UN diplomat, I don't know, and how she was at this dinner, and it was, like, posh, and they were, like, networking, and she said that she really wanted to do some traveling because she wanted to post Katrina as a New Orleans person. She wanted to see something on the lines of quote unquote globally how people are dealing with loss and displacement. And it sounded like something that you would that like a person would write in a personal statement yeah. to get into school or like a something you would write in, yeah or like something you would write in a bio. And I love those little parts where she's kind of taking a job at herself. She's kind of, <laughs> of critiquing herself, but also just being very real about how navigating professional spaces this is, like when you're directly impacted or adjacent to an issue, you have to navigate things in a weird way. And I thought those actually, like it was, I think she was probably critiquing herself, but I think also it's just very real. Like I've definitely done some done shit like that too. So I just want to ask, have you had that experience? What did you think of her writing about that and reflecting on that? Yeah, I think
1: I I think I could definitely see myself like I could it made me rem-
0: imagine myself at that age mm-hmm. also because I think that was like early twenties. Oh. oh I think right. it was like early twenties. Okay, okay. I'm interesting. I hadn't really thought about how old she was when she was an adult. Yeah, I mean she was very impressive at that point. Like she had worked for Oprah yeah, the an magazine, is. and then what did she do? She did she go to Burundi after that? Isn't that? Okay, so then she was at the magazine. Yeah, I think she was at the O magazine. And then she quit. I think.
1: And then it was she was like, she for to something. Burundi, and then Burundi was like pretty pre-love. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I like when I was like very younger, I was also really. I think I did have all these sort of impressive-sounding philosophical reasons (laughs) that, like, I, I, like, wanted to do things. Yeah. Especially kind of, kind of similar to her, like, get away from where I was. Yeah. I think I also felt that and felt... Because there is a lot of guilt that comes with that, too. Mm -hmm. And, like, feeling like if you can justify it, if you can be like, oh, this makes sense for my narrative. Right. Like, there's a really good reason I'm doing this. Yeah. Then...
0: There's a really good reason I'm, like, leaving the country and not talking to my family for a long time. Yeah. Then, like,
1: you can feel like it just feels justified, like you feel like you need to justify it, and so it definitely made me think about just kind of being at that point in my life also, like kind of early to mid-20s, because I'm not that much older than that right now,
0: but I think I'm starting to come out of that phase. (laughs) <laughs> no i mean i know i sometimes feel a little silly because i'm 27 and it's like someone is asking me about the historic wine and i was like oh it's your fourth avenue like where the college kids hang out like, i know You were there five years ago i, know. I don't <laughs> know if you can say that yet <laughs> i'm just saying that to someone i'm like
1: i feel so old here it's a college town and they're
0: like are you even 30 <laughs> why are you no it's it's almost, almost. <laughs> so i'm really i'm getting close getting <laughs> <laughs> close i'm getting close yeah i was telling my boss that like i feel like i relate to over 30 twitter too much yeah because i'm only 27 i shouldn't be relating that much no it's real <laughs> though they're talking about back aches i was like oh my god, yes i have
1: that too <laughs> like i have a pinched nerve in my back right now oh my god
0: that's serious <laughs> i know okay <laughs> talks about how she's kind of Sarah in her professional life and Monique to her family and you were talking about the guilt that's associated with leaving your nuclear family especially if you're really tight with your family and I think like this happens a lot in Latinx households too where parents are like oh my god I want you to live next door forever <laughs> and she one of the things that she brings up is that one of her brothers, like to to like tease her, make fun of her, would be like, Sarah, and she'd be like, Why are you calling me that? Yeah, and then I think for her, it was she felt stung because that her brother was questioning her role in the family or how that role might have changed because of her college experience and like where she had gone. So just, I wanted to ask, like, if you are professionally one name and like another identity or name with your family or if like you can relate to that general idea of like having to navigate these different spaces and these worlds that never meet
1: I think like as far as names not as much but at work it is like Laura in Spanish Mm -hmm. and other times actually like Laura other times but sometimes also Laura so like whatever works but I do feel that sometimes when I'm Maybe going to talk uh, in a presentation or something like that. I will actually have to be like, "What should I say?" and have to change it. But I think also, I don't know that I had such a such a defined place in my family growing up as she did. She talks about it a lot. She was a baby girl. Like everyone, was the, she was the youngest of all these eleven kids, and so she's like baby girl. Everyone's like protecting of her, and like I don't know that I like felt so. Like, I didn't fit so neatly where I grew up, with yeah. my family even. But I do think that moving away and sort of... I think she talks... It's it's kind of like in her story as well, like moving away to a bigger city and... Becoming, she moves to New York. Yes. Yeah, so becoming a professional. And then how when you go home, maybe that doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that sometimes. Like, sometimes I'm really like... I become very aware of coming off maybe really bougie. Or like, you know, does that happen <laughs> to you too?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, I kind of, I think my mom has a little bit of a chip on her shoulder because it's kind of funny that we would get to this point because she came to this country because she wanted me to have an education, but I think now sometimes she just and maybe it's things that I do and say that I need to reflect on why I make her feel that way, but she feels, I don't know, she gets defensive a lot and I feel like she maybe sometimes, sometimes I feel like her reaction to me is based on the assumption that I think that I'm better than her because Mm -hmm. I'm college educated. And that just breaks my heart because I don't feel that way at all. Like, I think I really related to her being like, I'm not Sarah, I'm still Monique. Like, I don't know why you're trying to say that I'm a different person now. Especially because I've tried really hard to not let these institutions and it's a, you know, white dominated workplace culture change the essence of who I am and so it's really hard to see how even if you are trying hard not to have your essence change the way that people interact with you changes it like once you have a degree I found
1: yeah no I agree my I think my sister is the one who kind of does that to me the most Mm -hmm. she will I think sometimes she tries to make my niece who's very young like think that I'm like that I think I'm really important or something Like, on the one hand, I think she likes that I'm, like, a lawyer, and that's a good example for her daughter, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's sort of, oh, but also, Aunt Laura moved away and, like, has this important job. (laughs) It's, like, a little bit resentful. Yeah, it is. And and sometimes I do feel like I'm not actually any different. Right, right. But but maybe I am,
0: you know? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, well, it's kind of, I feel like I kind of had to reflect on that when... During my 3rd year of law school, I moved to West Oakland, which at the time was at the very early stages of gentrification and I was 1000% participating in that. And I like hadn't thought it was going to be as problematic as it was because I'm from the Bay Area and I was moving in with my Latina roommates and friends from Yale. And then it's like, um, actually, at the end of the day, like,
1: (laughs) the fact that we went, I don't know, it was
0: just just a wake-up call for all of us, because it's like, you know, we see ourselves in a certain way, especially being on a campus like Yale, and being first-gen, and low-income, and Latina women, we, I don't, (laughs) we, I think, felt marginalized in that context, and then forgot to readjust when we moved (laughs) right yeah and then it's like I just realized like actually that like you're not an Oakland native you were born in Pacifica predominantly white town and (laughs) your neighbors don't care that you're first that you grew up first-gen low-income because all that they see is your Yale hoodie and they (laughs) they think that you're not they know that you're not from around here yeah that was something I had to go through
1: yeah, that is actually I had a kind of similar experience because when I went to law school, I moved to Detroit, and like my mom's from Detroit, and like grew up in not a great area of Detroit. And my um, my ex is also from Detroit, and is he's mixed race, and also I'm Latina. And I think so. Like I think we also had that kind of we had that conversation. We were like, are we part of, like before we moved? You know, we we're like, are we part of the problem or not? You know, and it's like a it is sort of a confusing thing. Yeah, because you're like we we have connections to the community, and we're Mm -hmm. maybe not as ignorant or, like, rude (laughs) like, some of the other people. Yeah. But then it is, like, later you're, like, actually, though, we are contributing to rising rent costs and all these other things. We're still part of that, even if you don't fit the, like, typical description of
0: the people moving in and gentrifying the neighborhood. Yeah. For me, I just have to kind of be honest about my lifestyle because... West Oakland at the time was single family homes and like these really bougie coffee shops that were literally selling like mochas for seven dollars or like eight dollars something absurd. Actually, went the first, the only time
1: in Oakland, I was in this part of Oakland where some people were like, "Oh, are you feel safe staying there?" And then I found I lived close close coffee shop, and I forget what it was, but it was um it was selling like toasts, like and like, I, I this is like before the avocado toast thing was like really popular, and I was like. What are toast? Like I was like, is it literally just toast with something on it? And like, like then it was. It <laughs> yes. was like really thick pieces of toast with like Nutella or like avocado, and it was like seven dollars or something like yeah. that. And I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm.
0: But times have changed. then I've been too sorry. Right? I know. <laughs> And then like I went to that coffee shop, and that coffee shop was obviously catering to me. And I went there because. The first day we moved in, we didn't have Wi-Fi installed, and I needed Wi-Fi because I needed mm-hmm. to check my email. And it's like, I just, that's when I was like, okay, I'm accepting that th- this is who I am. Like, I am a working professional. I have a quote-unquote white-collar job. Despite the way that I grew up and despite the way that I felt navigating these institutions, I have attained a privilege that I need to be more cognizant of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I went, I had to go for work once to, like, near McAllen, Texas, and my family lives right on the other side of the border there, and so I went to stay with them, and I felt like I had to. I had a I had a deadline, and so like I told them I had a deadline, but like I felt like such an asshole that I was like, "Is this who I am?" Like I'm like I don't get to see them very much, and they're having like a carne asada for me, mm-hmm. which like I was on my phone during that, but yeah. like other. Like, a lot of the other parts of the time I was staying with them, like, I was on my, like, laptop. Because I had this deadline. I had to file something online. And and I felt the same way. I was, like, I feel so just, like, gross. But yeah. this is, like, but I have to. Mm-hmm. And it felt, it did feel like I am this, I am this person. <laughs> like, maybe I, you know?
0: Yeah. I just think we have to own it. Because otherwise, then I and my children, if I decide to have <laughs> offspring, are going to become, like, the second-gen Latinx people uncle at college that I went with that really annoyed the shit of me because they were really unaware of yeah. the privileges that they'd had growing up. Yeah. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get that you're Latina, but also, like, your dad went to Yale. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right,
1: so does that make you think, like, did you think anything about that in the part where, towards the end of the book, Sarah talks about her moving to the French Quarter for a year? Oh, and yeah. I think she does kind of do that thing where she, like, explains sort of Necessity of living in the French Quarter to do research, and is there a part of her that growing up in New Orleans
0: East always was like the the place to live is the French Quarter, and yeah, I can definitely see that because I had that same kind of romanticization of San Francisco growing up in a suburb of it, and uh, I live, I was able to actually live in San Francisco for a very brief period of time, from twenty fourteen to twenty fifteen. And I was so proud of that apartment that I had. In like, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was really cool. So I could see her thinking that way when I read about her going back to the French Quarter. Because at that point, did she go back to the French Quarter when she was working for the mayor? No, she was. I don't think it, was, it wasn't the French Quarter.
1: She was in. I don't think it was New Orleans East, but it wasn't the French Quarter. It was when she was like really
0: uh, gonna write. She was really going to focus on writing a book. Oh, when she moved to the French Quarter. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, like, reading that part of the book, I just kind of really appreciated her brother, Carl. Because <laughs> Carl lived in New Orleans and, like, only stayed in New Orleans East and, like, maybe went to the French Quarter because he had to work. But otherwise, he hated going. Yeah. <laughs> she, she talks about how he hated going, how he'd, like, he, like, He's like, there's so much going on here, it's so crowded. And... He, he would repeatedly say something like, you know, like, the French court is not for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of appreciate... I just really respect a person who knows what will make them happy in life and, like, pursue that unapologetically. Yeah. And, like, don't try and do more or less than what they want to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I felt of Carl's character. You know, I think sometimes it's like, to his own detriment when he didn't leave New Orleans. <laughs> during, show, during yeah, Katrina it's like yeah. sometimes you really do need to leave the place that you feel comfortable <laughs> yeah but in general I really respected that and I think I saw a lot of myself in Sarah and like want to be more like Carl in my future
1: I agree because like I think yeah I mentioned my sister earlier she's like, kind of the only one who like calls me out for <laughs> thinking I'm actually making of like and, like, I was still an undergrad, um, and we were having beers at, uh, like, Brewery in Ann Arbor, and my sister posted this picture of me on Facebook, where I was outside on my cell phone, like, a flip phone, I think, and, like, <laughs> like, wearing some dress, and it was, like, my business lady sister, and I was, like, I think I was still an undergrad, but she was just, like, you know, she just always was, like, kind of trolling me in yeah. that way, yeah. because she is, like, much more, like, this is who I am, and I think, like, I really struggled, with feelings of, like, shame growing Mm -hmm. up because of where we grew up and because of who we were, you know, and she didn't have that. And I do, actually, Mm -hmm. I do think about her as something, she has a lot of qualities I aspire to, or, like, to just be, just be okay with who you are, be, like, just be, like, even, like, chill about it. I feel like I'm just so always, like, so guarded and, like, you know, like, always trying to be something, more.
0: Yeah. Well you're just talking about how like you feel like you need a five year plan. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know, right? I'm like I'm always like, what can I do that's
0: more that's gonna like you really better, like, hey, like I went to law school, and yeah, law lawyer, and I'm
1: like,
0: I don't know what to do, I don't know what my next goal is. And she's so not you
1: can just <laughs> live your life. She's much more yeah, she's much more like, how can what can I do to be more happy? Right. Yeah, like exactly. she just like has much better goals than me. <laughs>
0: talked about before according to was how she in the first part of the book she does outline her mother's generation their sibling dynamic and like their mother and the parenting that they experienced. did you like that part of it because i because i i did like it even though like you said it was kind of confusing to keep track of everyone's names because Reminded me of this other thing I heard somebody say, where they were they were talking about white people and they were like, I feel so sorry for them, the like I feel so sorry for somebody that thinks that their story begins and ends with them. Mm-hmm. Like they were like, in order to tell my story, I have to talk about my parents, and that's very much how I feel. Yeah. You, I can't explain to you why I'm living in Tucson doing detained deportation <laughs> right. defense without talking about my parents and their journey to the U.S. So I like I found it so appropriate, that and I, I was like, wow, like, I really respect that she's going back and like reconstructing through the archives. Oh, yeah. That generation. It made me want to do that, too. Yeah. Talk to my grandma, record her stories. How did you feel about it overall? Because I know you said that like it took you a minute to get into the book for that reason.
1: It did, yeah. I think, like, probably, like, the first 60 pages or so, like... This is a big book, also. Yeah, it's almost 400 pages. I think it's, like, 370. Yeah. Um, And they're big pages. (laughs) (laughs) The text is small. Yeah, exactly. There's some pictures, (laughs) though. I think, like, it was good. I never... I never wanted to, like, stop reading the book. But definitely the first, like, 60 pages or so... I almost felt like I needed to make, like, a chart.
0: Yeah. I probably should have.
1: Because I yeah. still ended up a little confused. Like, she talked about her parents' generation and her grandparents' generation. And, you know, not just her parents and grandparents, but their siblings. And so there were a lot of names to keep track of and nicknames. And then, you know, it's interesting how she talked about her own siblings. Because it was almost like two generations. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it was like her dad had some children when her parents got married. And so did her mom. And like her oldest siblings were twenty years older than her, so mm-hmm. and so it was a lot to keep track of to the point that I really I probably should have just written like a list of like who's who because then when she continues to talk about them later on, sometimes it was like wait who is that person and yeah sometimes she would use a nickname and sometimes she'd use their like, their government name
0: yeah
1: but at the same time I think it it is really important and I think she by doing that she is saying something really important about identity Mm -hmm. like what you were just saying it doesn't make sense to try to construct your identity completely detached from the generations that came before you or with you like your siblings or Mm -hmm. you know
0: yeah Honoring and recognizing labor of women. She really... She focuses a lot on her auntie Elaine, her mom, and their mother, her grandmother, as like the pillars of the family, and wanted to ask which of those mother figures kind of struck you the most. I
1: think... I think her mom. I feel like this is like an area that's really like... People are very likely to like project (laughs) their
0: own like mom experiences.
1: (laughs) But I think... I think I felt some of sort of the – I feel like she sort of gets mixed signals, right? Like, her mom seems like a very proud person and very – likes to be very neat and put together. And the things she says about how we always presented ourselves and dressed in a way where, like, no one ever knew we were poor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was largely due to her mom. And, like, I felt that a lot, too. Like, I actually had people say that to me at some point where they were like, oh, nobody – like no one would expect, like where I lived, like the part of town I lived in, or that that we didn't have money because mm-hmm. of how we dressed, because it was like, that's something that made me comfortable. Yeah. And at the same time as that, I feel like people also learn this kind of shame from their moms, mm-hmm. and I think she kind of. It's interesting because it's it talks about in this. In the memoir, how when her mom gets the house, how that is such a point of pride, and that you get like you get hints of that throughout the whole thing, it is a point of pride, but then also throughout a lot of Sarah's life, it sounds like it's a big kind of source of shame, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think I related to that a lot. Sort of getting a lot from your mom and really appreciating your mom is sort of the center of everything, but at the same time, sort of like internalizing a lot of attitudes of shame about like where you're from and what the conditions you're growing up in and she talks about how they never had anyone over until Mm -hmm. her her sister was in college and and after that it was like oh the mom saying this house isn't comfortable for other people yeah my mom says that Mm -hmm. and all the time yeah and i remember my mom always saying like people shouldn't come over you know Mm -hmm. and at some point like when i was little i was like why i just want people to come over and then later i was like oh because the carpet's dirty and this is dirty and this doesn't work and like you you figure it out. Yeah, you start to like kind of internalize a sense of maybe and you know, maybe like the moms, of course the moms do have good reason for that, but like as much as they're like the center of your world and like you learn so much great stuff and they have so many good qualities, you also maybe are learning some of that shame. And so I think for that reason, I sort
0: of, I'm also probably
1: projecting, but like, I feel like I related to that character, yeah, like to that
0: mother figure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a testament to how great of a writer she is that she grew up in New Orleans. Like, she's talking about her black family. You grew up in... I didn't grow up... I grew up (laughs) in, like, it was
1: sort of rural-ish, Michigan.
0: Michigan. My mom's from Detroit,
1: but... And we actually lived on, like, a dirt road and stuff, but it was, like... It was, like, the carpet's too dirty, and the couch is dirty, and, like, there's clothes everywhere, there's the oven doesn't work, the plugs are installed upside down, like, everything was, like, yeah. you know, like, just things where you're, like, oh, this isn't how a house is supposed to be, and exactly the same, like, it's, this isn't comfortable
0: for other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it just, it's a reflection of how great a writer she is, though. Even when you're in a different, totally different cultural context and geographic context, like you feel like she's writing about your experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, because that is, I mean, it is like a, it's a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you know, it's not just regional. Yeah. Cool. Which so, one did you
0: like? Or like, which, which, oh, which, which, of the which maternal people?
1: figure did you have the most thoughts
0: about? I think also her mom. I thought it was interesting. So she had two husbands and both of them died. And like oh, yeah. um, Sarah talks about how she she really believed that her mom thought that in her power she had killed those men. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like that's so powerful. But that also that it's a bit dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I would think that too, if that happened to me. I know, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, it is unfortunate, but then like she is, also talking about the historical neglect that's occurred in this neighborhood. I mean, the shit that like, people lived through in Katrina. Yeah. Oh god. Like the reading the Katrina chapters was the hardest for me because when it happened, I was a bit young, and so since then I've just been kind of like slowly uncovering more details of how it actually happened. And like now I have these very graphic images in my head of like dead cats floating in water and people like running up to their attic and like standing on their roofs for days yeah waiting for rescue
1: yeah i think uh, i feel the same way because i was also i was in high school i remember that yeah and it was like you knew what happened was terrible but you didn't necessarily know like the details
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: is there do you have any concluding thoughts only, I think, what I was saying to you earlier, that I thought it was really interesting in this book. She says that someone suggested to her about writing a letter to her house. Oh, yeah. And just if anyone doesn't actually want to read the book, but I still, I feel like I just want to share this idea because yeah. I thought it was really cool. Um, that it was, I think it was just her friend, she said, like, had the idea that she should write a letter to her house
0: um, as an adult, I think, after the house was gone. And so the house was eventually demolished because of this, like, home program. That. that was a,
1: was it was before that, I think. Really? They said it was, like, um not... I forget what the word, but they said it, it not couldn't... Not structurally sound. Yeah, it wasn't structurally sound after the hurricane. Oh, oh, okay. It was, like, an imminent danger of collapsing or...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but someone suggested you write a letter to the house, and I just think... For me, I was like, maybe I should do that, too. Like, I think there's something useful about that because, um, especially if you're someone who grew up in um, in a situation in which you were kind of ashamed of where you came from or you have very specific sort of bad feelings attached to it, I think there's something to be said. Like to me, I kind of knew that about myself, but reading this book even more, I was like, I think there's more for me to think about there. Mm-hmm. And like to sort of like as an adult, be able to look back and like appreciate some Aspects of your house, even if we're when you were living in it, it wasn't something that brought you joy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I think like thinking about the physical structure of your house can be or feel like a neutral way to enter into thinking about your childhood,
1: which is nice.
0: because like there actually is so much there when you start to think about like, oh, what did this room look like? What did we do in there? Like, what was this room for? And I like i used to not really believe that a physical structure could tell as many stories as she told yeah and like she just proved me wrong like no actually i mean there's so much to be told from even from the perspective of a house and she says a lot actually about
1: there's some parts where she said that the kids and the family like became the house mm mm-hmm. and i think that's that's like a really interesting thing to think
0: about yeah she described the house as the thirteenth unruly child. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I, for me, like because in some ways I related to that. Like it gave me a lot to think about. So I would recommend reading the book. Yeah, definitely. Also, just knowing that maybe even if you're not in like the first fifty pages, like stick with it. Yeah, stick with it because it's like that's really just laying the foundation for which is important yeah but it's not as um like you're, it's not as much of a page turner i think yeah. in like the beginning
0: i guess you could skim those first pages <laughs> probably yeah <laughs> you probably could cool well thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hope to have you again soon thanks bye <laughs>